Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. We're in season five, and we're talking about all things tech ethics and responsible AI and all of those related topics. And we are super lucky to have with us today an entrepreneur, Lucas Bewald. Hi, Lucas. How are you? Good. Nice Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. You all are going to love hearing Lucas's story. I have a feeling he's living the dream of many of you. So we're going to jump right into the discussion. Lucas is the founder and CEO of not just one, but two companies. He first founded and is the former CEO of a company known as Figure Eight. And a couple of years ago, he sold uh, that company for $300 million to another organization known as Appen. Congratulations on that. Thank you. While you think he may like go off into the, you know, wonderful world and live his life, that's not the case. He turned around and founded yet another company uh, known as Weights and Biases. And that is where he is continuing to work today as the founder and CEO so like I said, Lucas, congratulations, first of all, that's an incredible accomplishment. So how did you do this? How did you end up where you are today? And what got you kind of interested in being an entrepreneur and starting all these companies? I always loved um, artificial intelligence. Ever since I was a little kid, I was just enamored with the idea that you could teach computers to do things. And I went to um, Stanford and I really wanted to study it. And at that time, you know, people were like, AI is kind of all hype, it doesn't work. They talked about the AI winter. In the eighties, people really thought, wow, you know, AI is so powerful. Computers are gonna kind of do all the things that, that humans can do and they're gonna replace us. Kind of like how people talk now. Um, but at the time, you know, it was hard to find really good applications where AI worked well. I think there were like a few early successes and then um, the technology kind of got stuck. And so you didn't see like a lot of really meaningful applications for a while. And that's when I was in school, it was in the middle of that. Nobody wanted to go into AI. Machine learning um, was a little bit of a, like a backwater. I don't think people would have known, you know, what that meant. I mean, now, and, and a lot of the people, the professors were um, in AI, but not doing machine learning. They were doing kind of old, older style um, AI, which is more kind of logic and, and symbolic uh, manipulation. And, um, you know, machine learning was, was kind of coming out of more stats departments. Huh. Um, but I, you know, I just love the idea that you could teach computers to do stuff. It's always kind of really captured my imagination. I feel like, you know, in the long term, I don't see why we won't be able to teach computers to do everything that that humans can do. And I think at that point we enter a totally different world, maybe not in my lifetime, maybe my daughter's lifetime. At some point, I think we'll we'll figure that out. And I think it really has the opportunity to make a really you know, amazing impact on everyone. Yeah. And, yeah. And I felt like when I was 
graduating school, um, I was actually really excited to just get a job. I wasn't one of those people that's like, I have to start a company. I, <laughs> I um, felt really proud to have like a, um, you know, corporate job and, you know, people like cared about my, um, my skills. It felt really good. I noticed though that, you know, the only companies at the time that really wanted to hire anyone doing machine learning were um, companies doing either kind of Wall Street, like, you know, money optimization, which felt a little empty to me. I'm not really like opposed to it, but it didn't, it wasn't like my dream to go to Wall Street and like, you know, like help a hedge fund get like a slightly higher return. I think actually think it's kind of intellectually interesting, but it just, yeah. you know, for a whole career wouldn't, it wouldn't sustain me personally. Um, sure. And then, and so the other thing that was happening was, you know, companies like, um, uh, like Google were doing um, search optimization, try to show you better mm -hmm. search results, you know, at that time better yeah. apps is really important. Um, and the reason that that was a good early application of machine learning was actually there's a lot of training data um, created implicitly. So, you know, people yeah. would click on stuff and that's actually training day. You can use the clicks to, to teach um, the computers and you can use when somebody like hyperlinks to something, you know, that's actually like a signal there. Like when you link yeah. to somebody, you say what it is, um, you're sort of like implicitly kind of defining what would be good search terms to find that piece of content. So um, it was fun to work on, but I, I really felt like the thing that was holding machine learning back at the time was a lack of training data and, you know, training data is like the, the examples that you show um, the computer, uh, the, the ML system to then learn to generalize it. At the time, all the applications were ones where you sort of were getting the train data for free, but I felt like there was a lot of other applications um, where you actually have to label it yourself, right? So, you know, if you want to do voice recognition, you know, you need someone, you know, speaking things and then typing into the computer, what did that person say? If you want to, yep. um, you know, make a self-driven car, you need to like take a picture that the car is seeing and label every pixel in that image with like what is actually right. in there. It's the only way that that computer has learned to do things and they require a lot more training data than um, humans. And so, you know, you, it's this big expense. And um, I just really wanted to make machine learning actually work. And I felt like there was this kind of problem in the market that people couldn't get um, the training data that they wanted. And I, I really knew nothing about how a business worked. Um, but what I did know is that, you know, there's this problem that I wanted to solve. You know, it's a lot harder than I, <laughs> I kind of thought like going in, but, um, you know, built a, built a pretty big company over time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, collecting this data for, um, you know, for many companies. Yeah. The training data. So it was a problem you not only wanted to solve, it was a problem that needed to be solved. You may not have realized the magnitude of the, of the needing to be solved um, part of that equation when you started out, but that's yeah. almost like a match made in heaven. Tell us a little bit more about figure eight. I, I've heard it described your first company as a human in the loop machine mm -hmm. learning and AI company. Yep. In fact, by the way, just so the audience knows, it was included in uh, Forbes list of 100 companies leading the way in AI in 2018. What does it really mean when you say human in the loop, machine learning and AI? Well, it's the idea that most machine learning systems in the real world, they don't work where the machine learning always kind of makes a decision and then people just blindly follow it. Right. Most of the way machine learning really gets deployed is um, the computer makes a guess and if the computer is not confident, it gets sent to a human. Mm -hmm. And getting that right 
It's actually really critical. And, and, you know, the training data piece is actually really interesting here where the ones where the computer is struggling or where it's confused, where it actually asks a human um, to help are actually the perfect examples to feed back into the system to make it get better over time. The reality is like for a business, a 60% confident process isn't going to be that useful for most things that a business right. wants to do. Like, you know, with like with Wall Street, you know, if you could pick stocks right 60% of the time, you can make a lot of money or, right. you know, a search results, we don't expect search to always give us exactly what we're, we're thinking of. But for most like real business processes, you know, you do need really high level of accuracy yes. because something's going to break, you know, if the right. process breaks. But right. you know, the thing about like 60% accuracy, if you know the 60% of cases where you're going to be accurate, then a business might see that as 60% cost savings, right? If it avoids, you know, some other process, the 60% of the time that the machine learning yeah. um, is able to kind of do it automatically, right? So automating 60% of a process with 100% accuracy is really useful. Automating like 100% of the process where it breaks, you know, right, right. 40% of the time, really of the time. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why, you know, it ended up being the vast majority of our customers used figure eight in this way where um it would build this human in the loop um system and we would help them you know set things up so that you know you build an animal model that knows its confidence and then the the low confidence results get get sent to a human who labels it and then that gets fed back in the system so it's Got nice it. because your your process improves over time yeah yeah it really does and then when you finally get it up to a confidence level of I don't know, 95, 96%. I mean, each company has to decide for themselves what's the risk embedded in that particular process and what you know level of accuracy do we need before we are comfortable um, rolling it out, let's say, and then assuming the risk for the you know small percentage of times the, the machine may get it wrong, which again, I think will vary. So the software, one of the pieces of software anyway that I know Figure 8 had um, included the dash cam application of it and um, which was useful in, in self-driving cars. So tell us a little bit about that dash cam application of software. How did that work? Nowadays, a lot of cars ship with a little bit of like automation in the driving. Uh -huh. like the yep. um, and the way that this typically works is there's a camera in the car. I'm like really oversimplifying, but like one thing that happens <laughs> is there's a camera in the car and the camera's looking out at the world like a human. Right. And it's trying to decide like, okay, what's out there, right? I mean, so it wants to know, okay, like where's the road and where's the road going? It's also important to know, like, are there like, you know, humans here? Cause humans, you know, are different than a tree. Like humans will move, right? You also right. like would much rather like crash into a tree than a human. Ideally you don't crash into anything, right? right. And so, so the really the critical step or a critical step is um, knowing what's in front of you from a camera. And you might think like, wow, I mean, if you haven't thought about it, it might seem like, you know, computers can do so many amazing things. Why is this one so hard? And I think the reality is that like humans are actually really good at this, right? Like our eyes have evolved for since we were fish, right? right to, right. Um, you know, to kind of navigate the world that we're in. And a lot of our brain, what it's doing is, is actually like, you know, taking the photons that enter and figuring out like what's in those, um, you know, what's out there in the world. And so um, it's just a really hard task. Like, you know, you think about like what makes, you know, like a person a person. There's so many different ways that it could show up. There's different lighting conditions. Like you could see, you know, the reflection of a person, like in a mirror. How do you know that that's like not actually a person that you might crash into? So it's like a super subtle, difficult um, task. And really what we did was make it efficient to label every pixel because, you know, this is one of those ones where if you had to like click on every pixel and say, okay, this pixel is part of a person, this pixel is oh, part gosh. of a person. 
warrant of time, yeah, it would take you forever, right? So right. you want to be like a good guess and you want to sort of like build tools that kind of help the operator labeler um, make those labels faster. So you're doing more kind of correction of guesses that the system is making versus, you know, um, just guessing things from scratch. And then as you guess a new thing, then, um, you know, the, the automated system can kind of make a new guess about like, okay, if you think that um, person, probably those pixels around are also part of a person. And then, you know, you kind of iterate um, until you get to a point where all the pixels are labeled accurately. Do you think that it enhanced the, the safety of, of self-driving cars or the further automation of cars, even if a human is behind the steering wheel? You know, self-driving cars over time will probably be, um, safer than, than human drivers. They may, you know, they're not now, obviously, but I think over time they will be. I think what, what we really, what we know that we did is we helped make those um, self-driving systems um, perform better. Mm, okay. And, you know, that actually, you know, there's there's chance that that might've made things less safe if you just willy-nilly, you know, started deploying <laughs> these yeah. cars. But what I do know is that our, our customers cared a lot about safety themselves. And so, right. um, you know, they were really eager to, you know, improve the performance, kind of get it over the threshold where they felt like, you know, they could um, use it in different scenarios. And obviously the the first thing that you do is use it to like augment a human driver that's sitting at the wheel. This is almost like a human loop system, right? You could think of like a, a Tesla where you have to touch the steering wheel and like say that you're still um, looking at things and you're, you, you know, the intention is that you grab the steering wheel if it's like doing something wrong. That's a human loop system, right? Because yeah. the, the autopilot is driving right, uh, and the human's intervening when there's a problem. Right. At some point, self-driving cars will probably be uh, safer than humans. I don't think that by and large, uh, humans are there yet in terms of accepting accepting that. Probably because things like the Uber car crash and you know the, the the small examples they get really blown up and magnified, and that's all people can think about. What do you think it's going to take, Lucas, to get over that hump of kind of human acceptance? I think that the, the bar is naturally higher for like a new kind of system because it makes different kind of errors, right? And so, yeah, we emphasize the places where it makes mistakes, but I don't think that the human level of driving is like this, the peak that, that a, an automated system can do. So I think that, you know, the automated systems have to be like a lot better than human systems. But the amazing thing about computers is they keep improving, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I think what's going to happen is it's going to keep keep getting better and better and better. And then, um, you know, over time, people accept it. And, you know, there could be generational things. Like, it's interesting, my my daughter is too, and she talks to our Alexa, um, doesn't view that as, like, weird at all. You know, so, <laughs> um, and so, like, I wonder, like, maybe, you know, people that grow up with this kind of automation might, you know, be more um, yeah. accepted. I guess it's more of, like, it's more about, like, humans maybe understand less well than, <laughs> than yeah. um, machine learning systems. Yeah, you might be really right. It could be very generational, just like accepting tech generally, you know, has been. Over the okay, so let's turn to your current company, Weights and Biases. I find that uh, an interesting uh, name for the company. How does your company, Weights and Biases, help machine learning teams build better models faster? Well, we build developer tools that makes the developers more efficient. And you might ask, well, what are those? I'll give you like one example of something that okay. we do that you might not realize, right, that, that you would need. So, you know, when you write code, you version the code um, and you version it for a lot of different reasons, right? I mean, like, you know, you, if, if you don't write code and you write like 
text documents. You probably version those text documents some way you save them and you're like, okay, this is the latest one and this is the right. date and all that. And and you do that because, you know, you may need to go back in time and like revert some changes that you made, all those things, right? And so same thing happens in software. And so people do save all the stuff that they make. And then when you get to be bigger and bigger teams, the versioning gets really important because everybody's modifying the code base at the same time. Right, mm. and things would get really unwieldy if you didn't have like systems that sort of like looked at how each person was changing um, the code base and sort of merging the changes back together in a yeah. sane way. Yeah. Um, okay. It turns out with models, right? Really, the computers are like building these models, um, and the version control systems break in a lot of ways, right? Because it's not like, humans writing the code; it's computers, right? And so they, the computer, like humans, will like if I make like a V two of some software, I might modify a couple lines of code and change it. Um, with computers, like every time they do it, they do it from scratch, right? And so, you know, it's like, um, you, you really need to keep track of more stuff. Like you need to keep yeah. track of what was the training data, you know, what was happening when that um, model was being built. Like really versioning a model, if it's just the like output code, mm -hmm. um, it's not enough, right? You just don't really know what, what happened there. You want to like a whole track record of like, all the things that went on. And also, you know, people doing machine learning, they make a lot more versions because it's not like a human has to go in and like make each new version. The computers are making the versions. So you'll have like thousands, millions of versions, right? And so keeping track of all that is really important to doing um, machine learning safely. So, you know, versioning models and, and um, you know, versioning machine learning code is something that, that we do to help teams like, you know, both work better together, right? Because yeah. like the two people working on it, they can see what each other's doing. Sure. It also like stores the valuable IP for companies, right? Because if like, you know, you have a person who's building a model and they leave, you want yeah. someone to come in and figure out what they were doing and pick it up. Yeah. And then also there's a, you know, compliance issue of like, what if you put a model in a car and the car crashes? Yeah. And someone's like, hey, why did the car crash? Mm -hmm. You can't really answer that unless you kept track of which model you put into a car, which might seem obvious, but you know, if you don't systematize it um, over time, you know, errors will will creep in, and someone's going to forget to write down what version went into which car, and so we make sure yeah. that. As simple as that sounds, you're 100 percent right. I mean, and that's a huge issue for companies when it comes to controlling risk, making sure they are compliant, watching out for their liability, protecting their reputation overall. I mean, if that were to happen, and it's a simple little thing like what you just described, what version did it, you know, went into the car, and if they can't answer that, I mean, they, they'll lose. You know, trust with all of their customers and their customers are like, well, what in the world are you doing? You're putting in a system and you don't even know which one and you can't trace it back. So oh. it's a little it's a little thing that may seem obvious, but it could have really big implications, really yeah. big. I understand that the tools you're developing in the machine learning world for those developers is um, actually kind of really didn't exist. Back to your point about machine learning was Kind of an afterthought a backwater people weren't spending time in it meanwhile basic you know the software world was had been growing a lot during the time of the ai winter if you will so they had a lot of devops right in that space where they were doing a lot of this and i was reading some of your work and in, um in an article uh in TechCrunch, you mentioned that when software code fails you said it just it crashes but when ML work, machine learning work fails, it can behave badly in more subtle ways. And that really piqued my interest. And I was hoping maybe you could explain that a little bit. Sure. I mean, I'll give you an example, right? We work with John Deere um, to help him in fields identify um, which are weeds and which are crops that you want to keep. Yeah. Then they decide to spray just the weeds with, with um, pesticides, which is great. It uses less um, you know, less pesticides, it saves the farmers money. It also is better for the um, environment 
Um, and so, you know, the way you train that data is you pull a camera over a field of lettuce that has some weeds in it, right? And you take pictures and you have people label like, okay, here's the weeds and here's the, the lettuce, right? And so you might think like, okay, everything's great, yeah. right? And then, you know, one day it snows, right? And you can imagine like, if you just didn't have any examples of snow, you know, I think a human could probably figure it out if they were weeding, right? Also a human might like stop and say, hey, you know, I don't really know what's going on. I can't see the weeds here, right? You know, it's really actually hard for machine learning systems to adapt as well to new situations like that. And so what can happen is that, you know, in this snowy condition that was never in your training data, your ML system, rather than like stopping and not doing anything, it might decide to spray all the lettuce with pesticides. And that would be really bad. That would be like heartbreaking, right? You'd completely destroy the, yes. the field. And that's like the fundamental danger here, right? Because you, you can never collect examples of every possible edge case that you might encounter. And right. so, um, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a fundamental challenge with deploying, um, you know, machine learning systems today. That is such an interesting point. While machines are able to do things faster and we can train them to be better, everything that a human brain that we have learned over the years are things that machines don't know if you don't teach it, right? right. So now, now I get what you're saying. They can behave badly, like ruin an entire crop of lettuce, which nobody would want. So you have to think about probably the most likely scenarios that um, you know your tool is going to encounter and make sure you train for those. And then also think about maybe some of those black swan events, if you will, kind of the upper left of a, of a, a risk heat map. And for sure, all the ones that are gonna be upper right, you know, have great likelihood and great impact. So yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting. So let's switch topics entirely and talk a little bit, a little bit about diversity and equity and inclusion um, in the AI and kind of ML industry and, and, and tech in general. Um, you know, no surprise, I think there's been a lot in the press about historically tech companies not really being seen as a place where women can thrive, um, particularly if they're in the engineering, so they're in, in a STEM field. And you've been a two-time founder, so I'm really interested in knowing what your view of that is um, and, whether, and kind of what you've done to try to make a difference, being aware that that at least impression is out there. Well, I always feel a little shy like answering this question because you know my lived experiences as a white man, you know, who went to Stanford, right? So obviously there's a, you know, serious inclusion issues in tech that, you know, I, I really want to help with. You know, one simple thing that's like actually a real challenge is I think if you don't get um, diversity in your first couple hires, it can be really challenging. You know, I've talked to women engineers that don't want to be the first woman engineer on a team. So I think like when you get someone that's like willing to do that, you know, like I think appreciate it, you know, make sure that they're, you know, comfortable and happy and, you know, make sure that you're, you know, the stuff that you do as a company feels inclusive. And I mean, I think there's a lot of people that feel like outsiders um, in a Silicon Valley tech company. And it's a challenging thing. We do a lot of um, trying to survey employees and trying to be responsive to what employees are um, asking for. I have to say, I think despite the fact that you are obviously white and you're a male and, and you went to Stanford, you clearly have an awareness and an appreciation of the issue. You've used your position to think strategically about how do you get more women in. You recognize that if you don't do it in your first couple hires, you could have an issue, right? And that's a lot of where it starts, right? And being a good ally, being a good advocate, um, being the kind of leader that that people would say is inclusive. So um, yeah, I don't think you need to be nervous. You actually have a lot to share in that space. Are there any particular female STEM leaders that you admire? Oh yeah. Well, my old um, advisor, uh, Daphne Kohler, um, I, I just like admire her deeply. She's a, kind of a famous person 
now. I mean, she, um, you know, she won a MacArthur and she runs wow. a company called Incitro and she started a company called um, Coursera that's done, you know, oh, yeah. um, you know, Emily Bender is another person that comes to mind, um, you know, who's, who's kind of thought a lot about like AI and ethics and so those are great suggestions. I think people can go, women in particular, if they're interested, can go look up um, your women that you admire and learn a little bit more about them. And perhaps that might inspire them to go into the field as well. Yeah, I mean, I would say even men could stand to learn from these people there. Yeah, they're, absolutely. They're, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they can serve as role models, really, for, for everyone. I always like to leave the audience with some additional resources. If they want to learn a little bit more about this topic or, you know, watch or read or listen to something else and um, enhance their education even further, I want to know where you turn to for your best uh, additional learning. So do you have any recommendations for the audience on what else they might listen to or watch or read to learn a little bit more about this? Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, I don't want to shill for my own stuff, but we actually do do an interview series with people um, in the space, including the two people that I that I mentioned. So if you kind of wanted to watch in-depth interviews of, you know, people in machine learning, um, yeah. we have an interview series called Graded Descent um, that's super fun. I think one place that I was suggesting to people kind of outside of machine learning that I think is kind of an interesting place to learn about what's yeah. going on is there's a podcast by um, a guy named Lex Friedman. Um, who interviews a lot of really high profile people um, in the space and it's it's like super interesting. He really gets kind of like deep and philosophical and um, and it's pretty cool. Wow, how interesting. Yeah, yeah, so I guess the, I guess those would be my sort of like Good. entry points and there's there's plenty of, um, I mean, my, my favorite thing would be if somebody like kind of wants to learn, you know, how to do um, machine learning and there's just so many free resources. I think the best one I would say is Fast.ai. So if, if one person is listening to this and they go to Fast.ai and, um, and take the course, that would make me really happy. Okay. And there's like free courses on there that you can take oh, and learn about it? free. And it's like, yeah, by a really smart guy, really accessible. Yeah, I, I really recommend it. Very cool. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. And I'm sure that at least one person will go to fast.ai and we'll make sure to capture all of your recommendations in the show notes so folks can go deeper. Lucas, thank you so much for your time, for sharing with us your background, your experience, and, and what it is that uh, you're doing in this fast evolving space. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for The Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.